We are going to look at James chapter 1 today. There's an insert in your bulletin that looks something like this. Let me pray, and then we will dive in there. Lord, thank you for the, 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 the privilege we have to come and sing together as a family. And now, in a few minutes, the privilege we have to go to the communion table together. Now, we sit under your word. We pray that you would work in spite of our frailty in communication and hearing. Holy Spirit, magnify Christ. Help us to see what it is to follow him in this world. And thank you for the, the freedom that we have to do so and the power resident in us by you, Holy Spirit, to help us pursue Jesus. We pray that as a result of today, we'd be rooted and grounded more deeply in the love of God and the grace of Christ that we may put on Christ in new and fresh ways. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new sermon series this week on the book of James. We've been for months in the book of Revelation, which showed us in many ways with many different images that we live in a world in some sort of spiritual conflict. We keep seeing over and over in Revelation these dynamics of spiritual conflict that, that express themselves down through the ages in many ways, and we live in that world in the midst of conflict, in the midst of all sort of like ideologies and cultures. If you remember back in Revelation 13, we saw the beast of the uh, beast of the earth, which if you can put all Hollywood imaginations out of your mind and let the Old Testament just speak to it, we see, oh, that is just earthly ideologies of many kinds that support some, you know, human regimes and that also create a culture that works together to subtly allure the people of God away from him and to, to derail followers of Jesus and all these ideologies, not saying they're bad as they possibly could be, but they all of them are rooted in this common confession, even if it's not stated, that Jesus is not the Christ. Or Jesus is one of the Christs or something. Not rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the, the fruit of that takes place in our culture. And we live in the middle of that. James is wisdom for living in the midst of all that. That's why we're following up the book of Revelation with the book of James. In college, I had the privilege, I think I say it's a privilege, to read a book called One Day in the, in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Anybody ever read that? Uh, Ivan Denisovich uh, Shukov, as was his name. Shukov was his name in the book, written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It was one day in the life of a, a man in a Russian prison camp in maybe the late 50s or early 60s. And it was just one day in his life. And he ended the day by saying, you know what? This was a pretty good day. I like this day. And so from the character's perspective, it was a very good day. But from the reader's perspective, you know something. It's a terrible day. Nobody should live any day like this. But this guy, because he was in it and so immersed in it, thought, this is a pretty good day. Part of what Solzhenitsyn was doing is like the part of the uh, effect of an oppressive regime that has oppression everywhere is that it mutes your reaction to it and you can live in the midst of it and something everybody else would say is terrible. You say, well, it must be pretty good because it's, it's just a little bit better than another day like this. He was trying to get at what it looks like to live in a, in a culture where there is a, an ideology that's just overwhelming everything. So Solzhenitsyn also wrote this book, The Gulag Archipelago. Anybody has read this, The Gulag? It's I had one person read the, the I've, you have? Nice, all right, one, one reader of this. It's a little book, uh, 650 pages, written by a Russian man. Uh, so what he's doing in The Gulag is de describing how these ideologies develop and that the oppressive regimes cohere and in here and all these sort of things. Uh, because he was a famous writer, 
though he was, there was an assassination attempt on his life, it didn't work, they couldn't execute him because he was well known in the world, so they exiled him in 1973, first to West Germany, and then he came to the to States. On the day he was exiled, Solzhenitsyn wrote, uh, released a pamphlet called Live Not By Lies, 1973. This was the last thing he wrote while he was a Russian citizen. And I think, I read this a long time ago, I think it was my campus minister that introduced this to me. It has been so helpful. He's writing, what does it look like to live as political dissidents? Dissidents. What does it look like to live in a culture where you have an ideology that's pressed upon you? How do you practically live that way? And he, he calls ideology just lies, and he's writing from a Russian perspective. Now, this is about political realities, but I want us to put a layer, uh, remember at least, the beast of the earth and the Bab- and Babylon, right? The human ideology that gives life to culture, which, which sort of is a layer over everything. And so Solzhenitsyn gave this sort of as marching orders to live as political dissidents. He said, the simplest and most success- accessible key to our liberation is this, a personal non-participation in the lies or in the ideology. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule not hold through me. Just saying, we're just going to say no. For when people renounce lies, lies then cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only survive when attached to a person. Now perhaps we are not called to step out into the public square and shout out the truth, to say aloud what we think. Maybe this is too scary. Maybe we're not ready. But let us at least refuse to say that which we do not think to be true. We are not going to say or be forced to say that which we know is not true. As he said, we start there. I may not go out in the public square and declare all these things, but I'm not going to be forced to say what I don't think is true. This is his beginning political dissonance. And then he gives some examples, right, that, that from that day on, he... Solzhenitsyn would not write, sign, or publish in any way a single line distorting the truth so far as he can see it. Not going to distort it in any way. He will not utter such a line in private or in public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, any notes, nor speak it in the role, role of educator, canvasser, teacher, or actor. Will not in painting, sculpture, photograph, technology, or music depict support or broadcast a single false thought, a single distortion of the truth as he discerns it. Will not cite in writing or in speech a single quote for gratification, insurance, for his success, for approval of others unless he fully shares the cited thought and believes that it fits the context precisely. Now, this, I, this that does get closer for some of us here, I know will not be forced into a demonstration or a rally if it runs counter to his desire and his will and will not take up and raise a banner or slogan in which he does not fully believe. Now, some of your workplaces are actually kind of bumping up against this. I understand that. He will not raise a hand in a, uh, in a vote for, or for a proposal which he does not sincerely support and will not vote openly or in secret ballot for a candidate whom he deems dubious or unworthy. Now, we are, we are forced to, like, what's the lesser of two evils? Sultanates would say, it's evil. 
will not be impelled to a meeting where a forced and distorted discussion is expected to take place. I'm not participating in this. Will at once walk out from a session, meeting, or lecture, play, or film as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda. And finally, will not subscribe to nor buy in retail a newspaper or journal that distorts or hides the underlying facts. This is the first step he would teach us in what it means to be a political dissident. This is guidance for dissidents. Now, that may be appropriate to some of us, but I want to, to remind us what Revelation, the book of Revelation has taught us. We actually are spiritual dissidents. We live with what we might call the spirit of the age, constructed by human ideology and human culture that has a way of being, and God's people are called to live as spiritual dissidents in that. Right? Because we live with the confession that Jesus actually is the Christ. And that changes everything. Now, it may be not 100% against the spirit of the age. Fine. It may be only 10% away from it. That's fine. The direction of the spirit of the age is not our concern. Our concern is which direction is Jesus going? That's the direction I'm going to go. That's the direction I'm going to follow. Maybe it's, a, it's 180 degrees straight into the wind. Maybe not. Maybe it's only 10 degrees. It doesn't matter. The question is which direction is Jesus going? That's the direction I'm going to go, even though it may cause pressure in our life. Now, on the in front of your insert here, there's a little paragraph at the bottom. And though you can read, I am going to read it for you and make a comment. This is sort of the navigational guidance for this series. The book of James is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament, maybe the earliest writing, we're not sure, and given as uh, wisdom to followers of Jesus who were facing severe trials. However, this wisdom does not align with the prevailing wisdom of any age. The gospel of Jesus creates loving dissidents, those who dissent from the dominant way of being and instead live in step with the kingdom of God. This dissident may be, this dissent may be subtle or strong, but it is always a result of following Jesus in a culture committed to following many other things. Further, this type of wisdom pictures an alternate way of life for a world that desperately needs it. James is wisdom for such a life. So in the... The graphic is intentional. Uh, thank you, Lauren Ebel. I gave her my ideas, and she came up with something. It was perfect. You know, the, the sort of the spirit of the age is teaching us, right? This way, fishies. This is the way we're going, and it is what, we, uh, what cultural critic Rod Dreher calls a, a soft total, totalitarianism, right? Just a, a, a combination, not forced, but just a combination of the way things are, the way things are in music and in entertainment and in Hollywood and politics and your schools, just the way things are, the way these things should be. Does everybody believe this? This is just the way it is. We go this way, which is fine as long as Jesus is going that way, and the moment he's not, He's going this way, this is where we go. And so the, the, the three red fish are like just, it's not straight into the teeth of this, the, the wisdom of the age. It might be, it's just not in this case. And they are moving that way together in community. So if the, the spirit of the age says we're going this way, Christian descent is simply saying, no, no, because that's not the way Jesus is going. James is wisdom for that. One of the places this shows up in our world and right out of the gate in James is with trials and suffering. Because in a world where the future is uncertain or there's no future, trials look a lot different than for people who know that their future is secure. It looks very di much different. If in the world there's no God who is powerful and transcendent and loving and personal, 
Trials are much more threatening than they are to those who have a God who's loving, powerful, transcendent, and personal. If there's no Holy Spirit, then we have far fewer resources to deal with trials, right? The world has no Holy Spirit. If, uh, if there's no community for support, then every source of trial looks like a much greater enemy than it does than it need to to the people of God. So we are living as a people of God in the midst of the world that have very, in a, in a world that has very little to offer us with respect to how do we navigate trials. But James 1, 1 through 18 is about that very thing. So let's look at it. First of all, James 1, verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So this is just trivia. James is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Jacob. So if, you have, if your name is James, your Hebrew name is Jacob. It's just a Greek transliteration, uh, just the way it sounds. So if your name is James, it's Jacob. Jacob is James. So this is either James, the brother of Jesus, or James, the apostle of Peter, James, and John, you know, we're not quite sure. There's good evidence for both sides of those. Apparently, the early church knew, and he didn't put his last name, right? So it's like, this is James, you know, me. So uh, the dispersion is a phrase used in the book of Acts for scattering. It's actually the word scattering, those in the scattering. Probably this is that initial persecution that took place after Pentecost, that, the, that Saul, who became uh, also known as the Apostle Paul, took a place in before he was a Christian, ended up, steaming, ended up getting killed. They, the dispersion was Christians you know, Jewish people who had become Christ followers were dispersed from Jerusalem. So they were experiencing, they were driven out of their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, some of them were separated from their families. So they were experiencing a lot of severe trial, probably at the hands of other wealthy Jewish leaders who were trying to maintain the status quo and not upset things for either themselves or their relationship with the Romans. So probably wealthy religious Jewish leaders were driving these people away into the dispersion, and the, the recipients of this were Jewish Christians who had been driven away under severe trial. You don't experience that trial, most of us, and we may not, but this is good news for us in that if this wisdom we get in James is appropriate for people with that severe of trial, how much more for us? It's all the more appropriate and effective for us, and even if you are a person Who's experienced that type of trial? Now, perhaps we won't, but Joe just prayed for some of our missionaries in parts of the world where they actually may and do. Even if it's that severe, what we see also is that there is one who went into a more severe trial than anything we will ever taste and ever know, and he is accessible to us. What we're driving at in this passage, as it says at the top of your insert, is in Christ we are empowered to respond to trials as part of a larger story. In Christ, we are empowered to respond to trials as part of a larger story. We know in Christ something else is also going on. Now, this is not to dismiss trials. No, not at all. It's not to make light of them, not to discount trial and suffering in any way. But this is to give practical wisdom of what it is to follow Jesus in the middle of them. In, in, in a world that would give far different cues of how we should respond. And, and here's as, about as counterintuitive a statement as you're going to hear. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First move of... of 
biblical wisdom here, count it all joy. Reckon it as joy. It doesn't mean enjoy it. Like, oh, I'm so thankful for these trials. No. It doesn't mean be happy that, you know, for the trials, but in the midst of them. And they will invariably come. Notice this doesn't say if you encounter trials. Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? We, uh, it is an eventuality. Some of you right now are in deep trials. Some of you just come through them. All of us eventually will meet them. It, it is, this is what it is to live in a broken world. But the reason we count it joy, and that's an active thing, like I'm intentionally counting this as joy, is that if as we respond in biblical wisdom, something happens in us. A steadfastness sits in. A, a, a stability sets in to us. That word steadfastness is from two Greek words. One means hyper or extreme, and the other means standing. So steadfastness means like <clears throat> extreme standing. We're hyper standing. Right? That's what it is. Uh, and the effect of that, this is why we're counting it joy. Like that's, a, that's an active word. We're reckoning something. We're not saying, oh, this is so happy. Like we're reckoning it joy because it's creating a steadfastness in this in us. And the effect is that we're perfect and complete. Now, that's not moral perfection. That has to do with maturity and depth of character and depth of life. So I, I'm not even sure how we get depth of life and character without suffering. Now, all of us are on this quest to find the secret way we can have depth and character of life without suffering. But nobody, we just we keep questing because nobody finds it. Now, we intuitively know that it's unlikely. If you think about how do we get depth of intellect? How do we get depth of learning? We get deep in learning when the learning is hard. When you have a teacher who really challenges you or you, you got to learn something to survive, your business is going to go under or whatever. When the learning is hard and it, there's accountability and you've got to deliver, that's when that depth of learning sets in. We know that intellectually for our intellect. We know that physically. Like how do you get strong? You don't get strong by driving by the gym and looking at it. You get strong when the exercise is hard. When you are lifting heavy things, how do you gain endurance in running? You don't gain endurance by running, by watching people run. You have to, you have to run. It's when the, when the exercise gets hard, that's when we get strong physically. How, how do we get deep in life when life gets hard? What's the other way? There's not another way as far as I know. We get deep in life. We grow in depth of character and maturity as we deal with trials. But we don't deal with trials alone. Now, as a caveat, what I'm not saying is the Bible teaches us just take it. I just accept these trials, whatever. Don't try to get out of them. That we, in fact, we see Jesus himself early in his ministry. He says something some people don't like, which he's often doing, and they say, we're going to throw you off a cliff. And he passes through their midst. I'm not sure how passing through the midst went, but like he got out of the situation. Paul, when they were trying to Persecute him and kill him. He escaped by hiding in a basket and getting lowered down out of a window. Right? He got out of the situation. This isn't saying you can't avoid the situations or can't take some steps to m- remove yourself from the situations of trial or suffering. It's like, it, but it's getting at the posture and disposition we have in those. And we know this isn't pleasant. Like nobody chooses trials. We wouldn't choose them. Um, now by the Spirit... We are given agency 
in community to either prepare for them or stand in them, or maybe both at the same time. So all of us here right now have the freedom either to prepare for trials that are coming, or perhaps you're in the midst and we stand in them. This is the gift of the Spirit. This is the gift of the Word right here. And these aren't necessarily the worst possible things, right? Some of you will say, oh, I'm not, I'm not experiencing trials like this, so, you know, my home isn't being stolen because I'm a follower of Jesus, therefore I'm not experiencing trials. This says, count all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. To put a finer point on this, Tim Keller, who we often quote here, defines trials as this. A trial is anything presented to us and to our life which on the one hand may cause us to disobey or disbelieve God or on the other hand may confirm us in our obedience and belief and strengthen our character. So on the one hand may lead us to disobey or disbelieve or on the other hand may lead us to a depth of character and belief in God. So trials come in and they, they give us the opportunity of going either way. That's kind of how you know it's a trial. So it could be paying an actual price for our faith like the relationally, vocationally, publicly, financially. Many of you guys have not experienced that. Maybe we won't experience that. The, the trend line of our culture makes us question that a little bit, but that may come. But it's more than that, right? It could be, and you know this, relationships that break apart. Your own, people you love. It could be people we love and care for making decisions that we know are self-destructive and we're helpless to do anything about it. It could, people, it could be people we know and love who are actually walking apart from Christ and embracing the, the beast of the earth or whatever ideology du jour is available and just living a self-centered life. It's a painful thing. These are trials. We don't want to Dismiss those. They're real things. It could be physical pain, illness, chronic disease, other ways our body rebels against us as we get older. Keep discovering these things. It could be financial hardship or the threat of financial hardship. It could be loneliness. It could be deep, you know, it could be things that in other ways our body betrays us, our deep discouragement, depression, lots of other things. Some of these we're in now. All of us will run up against these eventually. This is what it is to live in a broken world. Anything that presented into our life which may cause us to disobey or disbelieve God on the one hand or on the other hand may confirm us in obedience and belief and strengthen our character. So the first move is to take all the eventual effects of this trial and reckon it, count it as joy. So not by faith, I don't like it right now, but I'm placing it in the joy column because it will produce a steadfast in me, a steadfastness in me. And it's very important, I think, at this time to understand this is not like a nugget of wisdom God just drops on his people. Like, hey, it could be worse, count it all joy. Like, suck it up, deal with it. Nope. There is another person who personally experienced steadfastness as a result of trial. More so than us. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. There is a interesting passage in Hebrews 5, 8. Sorry, my bookmark left me. 
Hebrews 5.8, Jesus, one verse. Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, although he is the son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. And we might think, well, how does that work? Jesus isn't disobedient. How did he learn obedience through what he suffered? What did he learn? He learned personally and experientially the faithfulness of carrying out God's plan to redeem his people. This is a plan he took part in creating. But he stepped into earth, took on flesh, and through the things he suffered, culminating in the cross, he experientially and personally learned what it was to be completely faithful to that plan. What it was to redeem a people. I've quoted from the old Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, before. His, this is what he writes about Christ's experience on the cross. Now, you have to hear this in 19th century elevated Scottish language, right? So, um, <clears throat> I'll do it without the Scottish accent. Christ was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. Now, remember, Christ, second person of the Trinity, only knew infinite Trinitarian love for all of history, all of it. We can't, we can't get our minds around eternity. It doesn't exist in finite minds. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in infinite love, infinitely, eternally, steps into flesh on the cross. Christ was without any comforts of the Father, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, S-U-N. Now that son became complete darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God at all. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless, deprived of God. He had the feeling of the condemned. When the judge says, depart from me, you accursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt, God, he felt that God said the same to him. This, he says, is the hell that Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. Yet if you choose to trust to him as your substitute, you will never be forsaken. McShane continues, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, McShane says, is because of me. Me, that's why you were forsaken. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. What am I saying? Jesus experienced what the Bible describes as hell in our place. He has gone farther in a path of trial and suffering than we could ever go. And he went there for us. That means whatever place you are on, on a path of suffering or trial, is a place he's already been. And he knows how to help us when we come to him. It means we have a place to go for wisdom in trials. And wouldn't you know it, that's the next thing we're encouraged to do. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We ask for wisdom. Now, I don't know what to do with this necessarily, but he doesn't say ask for a release from the trial. 
I don't know of a place in the New Testament where we see people asking for release from a trial. There might be, you can give it to me. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe you can infer that in some places. We see people all the time asking for wisdom and steadfastness. My first inclination, ask for release. Okay? Maybe that's okay. I think I'll probably keep doing that. But also, we have this, we have ask for wisdom, right? Lord, help me to know how to respond in this trial with a biblical wisdom so I may honor you and be steadfast in this. And we get very little help from our world in this. I don't know what your, who your worldly counselor is of preference. I don't know. Lots of people are po- popular out there. You know, whether it's Jordan Peterson or David Goggins or well, the whole list of people that are super smart because they're successful and you're not. Um, but something, the, the subtext is like, put it all together, you've got to be happy at all costs. And if you're a religious person and not happy and you're undergoing hardship, you probably should blame God because how could a God who's all-loving and all-powerful allow anything else in your life as if nothing else could happen in our life in a trial besides just being unhappy? Right? Uh, we can't envision any redemptive possibility that might come from a trial. We live in a world that believes we're all alone. So if we can't affect change right now, it must be over. And whoever calls this is the enemy and needs to be killed, canceled, or ignored. Okay? But we're heading a different direction. <laughs> Little fishies. Saying, so which way is Jesus going? He's going this way, the way that asks for wisdom from God as a God who gives wisdom to his people. So we ask for wisdom. Now there's this nice balance in this passage between plural and individual. It's kind of hard because we said this before, the yous in the New Testament and all the yous in this passage, Y-O-U, are plural. They're y'all. So it's given to a corporate group, but it's an individual also requirement or a call. If any of you all lacks wisdom, let him, individual, ask God. So we have to engage with God in trial. Some of you uh, has, have had this question asked by me to you, and then you've done, turned around and done the favor to me. Something's going wrong in your life. It's going sideways. You're struggling. You're suffering. You know what's happening. You want some help. I will ask you this question. Have you asked the Lord for help? Have you asked him for wisdom? Have you done business with God? Have you got on your knees? Have you got on your face? Have you asked, Lord, I need your help. I don't know what to do. Help me. And often it's like, well, I've read a good book. I've got some good, you know, I've got some good inputs for some friends. I read a blog, you know, a, a blog. I listened to a podcast, whatever. I kind of listened to the scripture. That's not what we're talking about. Seek wisdom from God. That is it. Some of you have done me the favor of asking me the same question when I've been bellyaching about my life. Thank you. We have a call to seek wisdom from a God who's gone farther into suffering than we ever can go and knows how to help us in any trial. And then we ask confidently as if God actually does have the right answer to give us. That's what this whole asking in faith without doubting means. we're, We're asking with the intent to listen. Jesus, you really do have, you really do have something to say. To ask without faith is like, Jesus, do you have something to say? No, okay, I'll go over here then. I'll get, I'm just going to keep asking until I get the answer that I want. And the warning here is like, don't expect to receive anything from God if you don't actually believe he has something to say to you. That's all this is talking about. There's not an intention to be steadfast when you come to God that way. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation 
because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, there's an ongoing criticism of the rich in the book of James. And again, if we're not sensitive to the context here, the temptation is to just pick this up and drop it in. It's like, I want to find a rich person who's always somebody who just has more money than you. Drop that on him. Like, yeah, in your pursuits, you'll fade away. Just go back to the context here. What's happening is the Christians are being pursued by wealthy Jewish religious leaders. One, one commentator called them the, the theocratically rich. And the temptation then for those who were being un, under trial because of that group was to compromise or secretly want to be rich and powerful like them so they would be free of that temptation or that, that trial. James warns against this. He says, though you are poor, you are actually exalted. Right? Because you are part of the family of God. That's where security comes from. Remember, the rich who are pursuing you now will fade like the flower under the, the Middle Eastern sun in the desert. They'll look good for a second. Then the sun comes up, and it's going to go away. So the encouragement here is to boast in, our, in trials. We count it joy. We seek wisdom and boast in dependence. What does that mean? Lord, we're de- I'm dependent on you. Security doesn't flow from having wealth and power. Security flows from having you, and I have you. So we boast in that dependence, partly in order to remind us of that dependence and to acknowledge the Lord and to exalt him. Real security doesn't flow from having more or having what the world would call security. It boasts in having the Lord and the Lord having us, and that's exactly what we have. We boast in that. We make much of that. That's what that means to boast there. Now, by the way, the warning against the rich was fulfilled in history not long after this. In AD 70, uh, the Roman army marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city, and all that wealth was held there was dispersed forever, and it's never come back. So we boast in our dependence, and then we keep going. Last November was the monumental half marathon that I decided not to run. But my wife decided to run with our neighbor, Danica. Now, they weren't running before that. They're not like these accomplished runners that do miles and miles all the time. Carmen said literally it was a couch to half marathon. Like that was like, <laughs> at first we couldn't run a half a mile. And then we learned, they, they worked so, I was proud of her. She did worked a good job. Like Josh is like, hey, where's mom? I'm like, she's running. Okay, great. Uh, and so they worked and worked and worked and ran and ran and ran and ran. For like a week and a half, I'm like, I think I'm going to secretly train and run with her. And then I got hurt and I'm kind of thankful. <laughs> so... I'm not a runner, but she has learned to do it. And the day of the race came. It was in November of last year. And um, it, the, the temperature was fine, but it was very windy with wind gusts up to 50 miles an hour. And she said, we were going. And like a lot of races, they, there was too much energy at the beginning. They started running too fast and then kind of burned through some of that energy. And like midway, they're like, uh-oh. You know, this is getting harder than we thought. But they kept going because they were together running as friends, her and her neighbor. And she said, but... Uh, those last couple miles, you know, we're just like, just keep going. Just keep going. And then we turned south on Meridian Street at the Children's Museum and started running south dead into the teeth of that 50-mile-an-hour wind in the last mile and mile and a half. And she said, we just had to keep going. It wasn't pretty. 
you know, I'm envisioning snot coming everywhere. <laughs> you know, she's not in this service, but <laughs> she was in the first service. I didn't say that in the first service. Um, but she's like, we just had to keep going. Look at this, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I mean, we keep going. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And God has promised to those who love him, that God has promised to those who love him. That's actually also what he said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But first there, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So we commit to stand and help others to stand. There is power in commitment that we are intentionally making. Now, we're not doing this in our own strength. We're doing this in the power of the Spirit. Like, my intention is to keep going. There's no shortcut to standing. I just, there's just a tried and true path. Now, I'm super encouraged that it doesn't say, blessed is the one who flourishes under trial or thrives or looks good or makes it look easy, or doesn't have like snot coming out of the side of their nose, and they're just trying to press on. Just stand. Just stand. Hold on to Jesus as he holds on to you. That's what it means to remain steadfast, even if it's not pretty, even if it's not easy or simple, or, or it doesn't seem healthy. We stand. And part of the benefit of the body of Christ is that many can stand with us. Now, nobody can stand for us, but many can stand with us. Carmen said they turned that last mile and they're like, we don't know how we're going to make it. And they're running into the teeth of these wind gusts up to 50 miles an hour. And then they were surprised. They saw off to the side the Shaw family. Joel and Kristen and all the kids were there. They went there to cheer them on and probably some other people in the race too. And Carmen said, I remember running, thinking that moment, this is what the body of Christ is supposed to be like, where people are cheering us on to go, not just in a race, but in life. And that they were encouraged and strengthened and buoyed by that reality to run, to run, because Joel and Chris and the kids were cheering them on, right? Now, you may not know this about the Shaws, but both Joel and Kristen are very advanced runners, distance runners. They're, they're both very good, college runners, all this kind of stuff. But they couldn't step in and run that race for Carmen and Danica. But they could cheer them on, and that they did. And it empowered them to just keep going, just keep moving. A lot of people can stand with us, but there's this call that we actually have to stand. You have to stand, and you have to stand, and you have to stand, and I have to stand. But part of the benefit of the body of Christ is that we can cheer each other on. That's part of the role that we have. We cheer each other on. We pray for each other. We write notes of encouragement. Now, on the other side of that, we let people know when we are going through something that we need to stand in. Right? We got to let people know. We want to solve these from the, both sides, but it's very hard to guess if we don't know. Right? We want to let people know. So we, and we bear burdens with each other so other people can stand. I will say, let me just give a little commercial, join a community group. That's the first level uh, structure we have for people standing with you. Do you know what the other first level structure we have for people standing with you is? Zero. We don't have one. 
That's it. <laughs> so if you're not in a community group, I encourage you, try to get in one so that you have other people around you cheering for you, right? This is, it's not a law. It's not a moral you know, qualification. It's like this is, our, this is our structure to be the body of Christ. Because without that, we can feel isolated. And when we feel isolated, there's another deep temptation mentioned here. And that's to think somehow God is playing games with us in suffering. That he's tempting me. He's tricking me. He's punishing me. Look at verse 13. But let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it finally is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a lot to say in that passage about sin and a theological grouping called concupiscence and all that. But let me just go by it by saying we don't want to confuse the process of temptation, sin, and self-destruction in us from that coming from God. Now, the mystery of God's providence in our suffering is deep. He is, con- he is sovereign. I don't understand how all that works. He is good, and we do suffer. I don't know how all that goes together. I do want to recommend to you at this point this, a book here by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, written several years ago when he was going through a, one, a bout with cancer. Now, many years later, he he's, actually has stage four pancreatic cancer. So this will eventually take Tim Keller's life, and he knows that. So what he wrote in here is even more deep in his own soul now. But I encourage you to read this book. It's typical Keller wisdom, insightful, pastoral, gets you to think, challenges you, all this. It's worth the, it's worth the price. We do not have this out there, but it's not hard to find. On There's a little book distributor called Amazon. Pretty easy to find things. We don't, so because it, that mystery is deep, we don't always know what is happening. But we know one thing is not happening. What's not happening is God's not tempting us. He's not playing games with us. He's not punishing us. He's not tricking us in this. What is happening is he is available to us and he's gone before. He's gone farther than we have so he'll go with us where we are now. And maybe the last part of wisdom here in trials is look for evidence. Look for evidence of God's grace. Look at verse, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look for evidence. Even in the midst of deep trial, there's other things in our life we can identify and say, you know what, that's a good thing in my life. And this is a role of community also to see those evidences of grace and evidences of kindness of the Lord in our life. And we look at that and say, you know who that came from? That came from a God who is good and does not change. He's the father of lights, the father of creation. He doesn't somehow become evil. So I don't want to misread what's happening as the evil of God. This is actually a sign of his goodness in my life, even though I don't understand the other stuff. And maybe we're too pain blind to see that, okay? Maybe we can remember back in our life a little bit. I remember that thing that that is good, that was good, clearly from God's hand. He doesn't change. That's the evidence of the unchanging goodness of God. And even if that's still too dark, there's something else that should be deeply encouraging to us in, in, in trial. You believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Why is that deeply encouraging? How would that happen? The God who made light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give us the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what he's talking about there in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's talking to them like he caused you to believe. You were the first fruits of my people in this area. I've worked belief in you because I'm good. That's a sign of my commitment to you. And though everything may be dark, just hold on to that. Remain steadfast. The Father of lights has become our heavenly Father. That is, a, that is even if it's a slim glimmer of light, it's enough to see by. So we're going to go to the communion table. I'm going to close. You're not supposed to close a, a sermon with a scripture text that's not in the sermon. Sometimes it's appropriate. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says these words. Now, he went through some rough stuff. Beaten, shipwrecked. They tried to kill him one time, put in prison, all this stuff we've never experienced. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, light and momentary affliction, uh, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the way I understood this is Paul saying this Suffering in our life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's as if it's expanding my soul. We don't become deep in life until life gets hard. When life gets hard in Christ, it expands our soul to be filled up with the joy of Christ. Maybe right now, maybe that's too dark. Maybe we can't see it, but it's expanding our soul to be filled up one day when the fullness of Christ is, is obvious and true in the restoration of all things. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's the preparation. No suffering for God's people is wasted as we respond to it biblically. It, it expands our soul. But then in Matthew 27, we have a great picture of worldly wisdom about suffering missing what's happening. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross. Let me translate. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let this bad thing happen to you. You're not who you are. Look, God's allowing this difficult trial in your life, even though they had no idea how hard it was going to get for Jesus. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. Now, they were the Bible teachers. They should know better, but they didn't. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What are they saying? Oh, God's playing games with you, Jesus. If he loved you, if you really were the son of God, this would never be happening. What could possibly be happening in this that is any good at all? They had no idea. In that moment, as they're mocking him, he is going into a deeper darkness than anything we can or will ever go into, and he is creating the glory that will fill our soul in suffering. Each week, we come to the communion table. Hear what's preached to us as we take bread and cup to ourself, represent the body and blood of Christ. This is a declaration by Jesus to us. We think of him standing in heaven now, serving us by his spirit, that he has gone into a deeper darkness than we could ever go into. And we take it now. He serves us now to communicate to us, I am with you now in whatever trial you might go into.
If you're in Christ by faith, I want to encourage you to come to this table. You may be weakened right now. You may be in the depth of trial, the depths of despair. Or you know what? Things may not be going that bad right now. Either way, Christ promises to be with you. He promises to walk with you in every single moment and give you wisdom in every single moment. So if you're in Christ, I'm going to pray and invite you to come to the table. Lord Jesus.